Hi there, I'm Neil Salas Griffin. I'm a teacher, a former founder, and a former mayoral candidate in the city of Chicago, and currently the managing director of Techstars Chicago Accelerator, where I have the honor of helping young companies grow and flourish. Each week, we bring together a rotating cast of high-powered and provocative guests to talk through the most pressing topics of the moment. It's a free-form and unscripted conversation from the Techstars Podcast Network. Let's go! Right, welcome back for episode two of Talking Through It. Hi, everybody. I've got two amazing people with me, Taylor and Clem. Uh, these are two of my colleagues. They are both managing directors at Techstars. I'll have each of them introduce themselves real quick before we jump into our topics. I'll, I'll try to kick us off well here. So Taylor McLemore, managing director of the Techstars Workforce Development Accelerator. In my heart of hearts, I'm a builder and uh, love uh, ventures that have an impact behind them that are trying to help uh, make other people's lives better. And uh, it's what I do um, outside of the tech stars world. My big passion is uh, supporting military veterans and military spouses so that they can become startup founders. It's my gym. Thanks Taylor. All right, Clem, batter up. I should not have gone so gone. Ah, Taylor, you're amazing. Hi, everyone. Uh, my name is Clement Kazalot. I'm the managing director here at Techstars in Boston. Um, I've been on and off with Techstars for the past nine years, uh, nine years and a half, but, uh, first as a founder going through the program, then as a, as a mentor, peer, investor, and uh, was handed the torch over three years ago to run the program uh, here in Boston. And, and what I focus a lot on is uh, deep tech companies. So companies applied like with a lot of applied science behind it, uh, healthcare, and uh, people with very strong accents. Uh, that's like, uh, <laughs> and working a lot with immigrants, immigrant founders. You've got a fantastic accent, Clem. Thank you for being here. We need it. We need it right now. So uh, we've got five topics that we're going to cover fairly quickly, five minutes each, roughly. I will uh, keep time and uh, trigger the convo. So let's get started, guys. Let's talk about virtual holidays, because last week in the U.S. was Thanksgiving. And it's a traditional time for families to get together, share a meal, get into, you know, reflect on the year, give thanks. Uh, this year was quite different. So what do you guys think of virtual holidays and spending time with people, but not always being able to get together? I'm from France originally, living in the U.S. now for, 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 uh, for, for about 10 years. And what's interesting is for me, virtual holidays has always been a thing, actually, for the past few years as like an immigrant, I had a family in Europe. And so that has forced us to, I just had a daughter recently, so I had to introduce my daughter to, to my family remotely. And I feel like I was always the outcast of like, hey, virtual holidays is a thing for me because I cannot travel. I have a part of the family that I cannot get to. And now it's... Uh, it's everyone going through that and, and uh, speaking with a lot of founders, there was a lot of anxiety around it and feels like actually in 2020, the introduction of like Facebook portal, uh, Zoom, WhatsApp video, like it's really easy for people that are like 90 years plus even to, to get on that discussion. So so was was actually a, a really, a really uh, eventful and, and nice holiday for 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 us uh, for my family and yeah clem what was your setup like how did you go about like introducing your child to your family like remotely like that what was it a zoom call or you know like tell me I, more you got to tell I, the people how to I, how to do this I, 
I Facebook messaged my grandmother who is 91 years old. I, fa I fa uh, used Facebook Messenger to call on a Facebook portal that we had set at her place to introduce literally our daughter was born for 10 minutes and I had like a, a 90 years old lady like crying, weeping tears of joy of having a first uh, daughter. And so that's like virtual aspect of getting families together. We all live through that, like through just shared WhatsApp group and, and feel like this holiday was an extension of what we all are starting to learn uh, to do well before the pandemic, which is getting closer together thanks to technologies. Wow. Thank you, Clint, for sharing that. Uh, I mean, if it sounds like, you know, Facebook uh, came through in the clutch there, at least with the portal thing. That's amazing. Like, I, like uh, strongly advise to everyone, whatever is the simplest for your family, meet there uh, here, like you're listening to a podcast, so you're somewhat like tech uh, savvy, but your family might not. So meet there what, wherever it's easiest for them. Amazing. And Taylor, how about you? Well, I, I'm going to piggyback on one of those themes because I walked away from being impressed with how like my aunts and uncles and grandma were actually pretty good at tech adoption, right? Like Zoom, not the easiest product to work, but my grandma's a pro at it now. And, you know, the whole like, can your grandma use this product line is like uh, very real, but I think it underappreciates how much credit we should give to the grandmas and the grandpas out there. Yeah. Like they can actually like figure this stuff out really well, pretty quickly. And that's what I've been impressed with is like, my grandma is now like the zoom queen. And I totally respect that. Like that's how she's staying in contact with people. And I loved to see that because connection was really meaningful for her. We actually, we, uh, we lost my grandfather about a year ago. And so I knew this Christmas was going to be important for her. And she was able to do it. The technology worked. Everyone was good. Was it the same? No. But like, was it good? And was everyone connected? Yes. And I, I have a ton of gratitude for that. So that's one thing. The other thing I'll throw out there is most of my family is really close to each other. So I live here in, in Denver, Colorado, and a lot of our family is within an hour of each other um, on both sides of my family. So a lot of holidays is like, go to this place and then bounce to this place. No commute. Like it felt like the day stretched on forever and I just got to be leisurely about it. So, you know, while I was sad, I didn't get to see as many people in person the fact that like we just had a smaller holiday um, felt good in certain ways. It was a so silver I, lining there. Yeah. yeah. Less, yeah. Uh, fewer dishes to, to clean as well at the end exactly. of it. But, right. but more turkey per person. I'm, I'm worried about that per, like turkey per person ratio that's, uh, that's happening with smaller Thanksgivings. There's still a lot in the fridge for us. Well, well speaking of turkey, like what, what was the best thing you all ate this past week, at least for the holiday season there? Well, I'll throw out one. So I, I, like, I was really excited. I was really proud of myself. I, like, I went out of my way. I, I did a Cajun rubbed smoked turkey and it was beautiful and it was super tasty. And like in my, in my moment of pride and ego, I took a picture and I sent it to all my friends from college. And I kid you not, one of my best friends from college responds with a link from the onion and it says, big deal chef announces he smokes turkey. And I'm like, <laughs> darn it. I'm that guy. <laughs> well, look, Taylor, you just made me hungry, man. So uh, you can send me that picture after this. I'd appreciate it. <laughs> That's awesome. Clem, how about you? Uh, so we cheated. So, so my wife is in the restaurant business. So, uh, so we, we were, we were able to get like a, a, a special deal got through, through that. Exactly. Uh -huh. We got the hookup and, and, and got the, the restaurant experience at home. 
uh, and have like a small group of people that like were a small bubble and, and, and try to meet. So, but uh, however, out of all that, the Turkey is the one thing that we did ourselves, and that was the very first time doing it. So we were like very like like uh, uh, traditional and uh, just the experience to cook as a, as a, like uh, with your, with your with your partner. I mean, in our in my case, that was very special. So that was really fun. Wow, wonderful! And no fighting broke out. Sounds like. And no fire broke out. So that was great. That's good. That's good. All right. Well, let's jump to the next topic because at Thanksgiving, people tend to talk politics and uh, we've got a seemingly new president, you know, let's, let's, I think that's, that's pretty much all, but, but determined now. So, is it uh, or like, it was, was, did both party agree on that? I, I think we're close enough. We're close enough now to make some assumptions. Uh, you know, if, 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 if I, if I've got this correct. So with president elect Biden, presumably, uh, as he continues to roll out his cabinet picks, uh, he's got an emphasis on climate change, green tech, re-engaging the global community. What are the opportunities for startups in light of this? What was interesting for the past nine months was the very first time that politics and political choices, actually for the past 18 months, that macro political choices impacted startups, starting with a tariff with China that actually like damaged very heavily most of the hardware companies and hardware startups that we have in our ecosystem, the pandemic and like the, yeah. the shift that like some local decisions, the shutdown of physical spaces, actually like a, a lot of the companies and startups that, that like the pandemic had a big impact and now with the focus on Biden and the economy, uh, the, we have like from the perspective from what I'm observing, there is two trends of companies. There are companies that are right now focusing on capturing, like, so you, you mentioned like all the climate change, green technologies. There is a lot of tax credit associated to that. There is a lot of like, we can actually now get technologies out of the labs, out of MIT, out of Harvard, and seems to have a line of, of, of uh, uh, perspective on funding with the NSF and, and many others and the Department of Energy that is like wanting to be super active. So that's like deep tech companies actually benefit a lot from that type of, of long-term programs because the money rolls to them uh, through the government. I mean, Taylor, you know a lot about that. And so that's like one big bucket that, that is emerging. And the other part, which I think is a byproduct of this campaign, I've never seen so much coalition. And I mean, Neil, like you ran for mayor in Chicago, like you right. know about like galvanizing community. And it seems that there is an aspiration for people to come together as, as groups that I've never seen before over the past 10 years, or at least with that extent of like a uh, uh, new generation of either social media or a uh, social network or subset within existing networks. And so that is actually creating opportunities for startup focused on curation, creation of content, creation of, of, of access to, to in-person or virtual events. So that's like the two buckets that I see, like one around funding long-term innovation through all this like big ambitious program and on others that is a byproduct of how as a society we're coming together here in the U.S. And Clem, when it comes to that innovation piece that you were talking about the first part have, have you seen any of the, the founders you're currently working with in the, in the boston program like think about that or take advantage of that oh massively so actually over the past uh, I, I got the opportunity over the past three years to get closer and closer to the to the u.s government working like with the programs that we had with the u.s air force and i'm seeing actually more and more startups looking embracing government funding grants r&d development it's not for everyone but working with the u.s air force with like to, to fund the initial stage with the nih the nsf and uh, and so that is actually massively impacting how they think about the early stage funding to get this non-dilutive 
active capital, but that is also extremely high value added. Um, and so, yes, that is impacting all the stage from pre-seed innovation to later Series B, Series C uh, acceleration uh, for, for like scale-ups uh, and grown-up companies. I love how much you've thought about this. And uh, Taylor, what, what are your thoughts? I agree with what Clem said. So I'll, I'll try to just add a, a slightly different angle, which is um, there's so much opportunity to work with the government, not always easy, but so much big opportunity and knowing how to do it, knowing how to do it right is, is important. But with the shifting tides at the political side, I think you can see major players that are the corporations starting to really check what direction they're going. And so I'll give an example. It's some of the big auto um, uh, companies out of Detroit were trying to sue California over the emission standards, which were basically trying to preserve the Obama era, um, you know, uh, EPS standards, et cetera, around pollution from cars. All of a sudden you have a president elect Biden and they just dropped the lawsuit companies are ready to really engage um, with more progressive thoughts on these topics that you hit on, um, environment, social equality, all that is these different elements that you see in the cabinet picks. And what I would say is that's going to have a ripple effect. Mm. A lot of the big potential first customers in terms of corporations, large nonprofits, whoever you would need to help scale your impact as a startup if you care about environmental um, you know, innovation, things like that, they're going to start going that way again um, because they know that's where the winds are blowing. Be on the front edge for them because they are turning massive ships, right? Like these are oil tankers in the ocean. It takes right. them time to move them. And as the startup, through partnership, through first customer relationship, through pilots, you can be them getting there faster and that drives traction for you and also gives them what they're looking for, which is access to innovation and also honestly makes them look good from a marketing perspective. So give them what they want and they can help you accelerate if you play some of those cards well. Well, Taylor, I think you're giving some great advice. It's almost like people should sign up for your accelerator or something. Bring it on. <laughs> yeah, let's do it. All right. So our, our, our third topic, let's talk about, you know, venture capital and long-term success. This is going to be a fun one. I already see a smile on your faces. You know what's coming. So last week's New Yorker magazine, Charles Duhigg wrote a piece that lots of people in our world are talking about. And the central question in it is when startups like WeWork are flooded with cash, are they being propped up to their peril? How do you guys advise early stage companies to navigate this world? The rule of the game is as a second you start accepting, uh, and so the, the title of the article is How Venture Capitalists uh, Are Deforming Capitalism. Uh, and it's right. a beautiful piece. Uh, and that has had a lot of discussion uh, around that. And the rule of the game is a venture capitalist, an institutional investor, needs to produce returns. Their job is to produce the maximum return on the money they invest. Uh, and that is a highly risky asset. And as a result, there is a discussion. If, if I put X, do I get Y? And like, there is an entire like, uh, uh, bigger mass equation around when I invest, what, what does venture scale mean? Right. Companies like WeWork, but so many others, like, uh, like the Airbnbs of the world, the, uh, the, the Pipe.com recently, the, like many like, are getting cash as one of the reasons for scale and the ability for them to grow as, as massive companies. And, and is 
raising too much like a risk yes that's always a risk uh however like and, and the piece like i agree with 95 percent of what is inside like yes like vcs are changing a lot of the game of of capitalism by creating like by accelerating almost artificially gross without without the reality of the ground like a lot of the articles goes into how because we work was loaded with cash basically end up like to some extent killing competitors by investing alongside them and and, and being a, like unfair competition uh, because they had more cash than the market the reality was propelling and they were running at a, at a massive loss uh, as of at the end of the day the company is dying because that was an unsustainable pace of growth and an unsustainable way to grow the company. Uh, so for all the, the early stage founders, like back to earlier, we're speaking about government money, is like raise what makes sense for you and when you know how to deploy it in an efficient way. And, and the beauty, most venture capitalists are actually professional investors that are very thoughtful around it. And most of the time are going to help you figure out what this plan and, and work together here. So there is, yes, there is always a risk to raise, to raise too much. The second you raise $1, you're committed to returning that dollar at some point. And so that puts a pressure on growth, but it's not necessarily unhealthy to have that because that's also how you create disruption and you create some like massive shift of technologies. We were speaking about Zoom earlier. Uh, we're speaking like all these virtual aspects uh like uh like the facebook wouldn't be facebook if there hadn't been the amount of cash that was injecting in the platform to reach a scale it had so yeah uh it's work with your investors yeah clem I, you know and as as the three of us are are fairly early stage investors you know i think about it i, I found the article really interesting in, in talking about how many vcs it doesn't make sense for them to invest less than 30 40 million you know and, and go way bigger uh in light of that uh so uh, taylor what are, what are your thoughts on this I kind of simplify it down to, and trying to position it, I think how you were asking some of that question of like, how do we help founders think about this stuff, right? Because there's, there's the ones that are actually building the companies. And, yep. and at the end of the day, uh, you can't be forced to take money. Now, you do get on a path of venture funding. But there's always lots of branches to that, that decision tree about which investors you work with next, what size of rounds you get. And I like to distill it down to, does this investor think about this as we're investing in the company to help the startup get through the J curve of not being profitable before the unit economics are really exciting, right? Like the, the example from Clem, like Facebook had to get a, mon- a bunch of money early, but now it's highly profitable. Um, or is it just pure momentum investors? And there's just like, I think I can put money in now and someone will pay more later. And it's not fundamentally driven or not even grounded in the reality of someday being in touch with fundamentals of positive unit economics, things of that nature. And I think you can really figure that out pretty early in a conversation with investors. Just say like, hey, like, what is a great company to you? And they'll say things like, I'm only searching for unicorns or, hey, I really love a great fundamental business where the founders focus on unit economics. Those are two totally different people, right? And so just the more that you have those conversations to figure out that you're getting the right intention and the right motivations behind the capital around the table as you're building that company, like that's what I focus on and what I take away from, you know, the WeWork situation, because I think Airbnb is a great comparison as they're about to IPO right here. Um, They didn't blow up like WeWork. And in fact, during the downturn, they had the management discipline to make some really hard choices to do big cuts, to move towards profitability, to prove the market that they could. Right. Versus just, we're going to throw more gas on the fire for the sake of growth. They showed, we actually know how to run this business. And I have a lot of respect for that. Yeah. And Taylor, to distill, I think what I'm hearing from both of you, 
it's understand the investment thesis and desired outcomes of the investors you're talking to, right? And then once you, if you're on the same page and you all have shared and similar expectations, then, then move forward and, you know, let the, let the, let the process play out. You got to build a great business. And, you know, sometimes you can learn a lot from these very glorious mistakes, but what's fascinating to me is how many stories go untold, right? Of all the venture raise and the struggles that happen here. And we work happens to be the, the, the thing that we can really pile onto because it's such a phenomenal example of so many things that can go wrong. But uh, yeah, lots of still unpacked there. We could do a whole podcast just on that. Um, so let's jump to topic four. Unless, Clem, you got something else? No, I was, I was about to say, inve- like we glorify in the tech industry raising money. Like if you read TechCrunch, you read all mm-hmm. like, the, like it's how much has, was raised. Even at TechStars, we're culprit of that. Like we, we, we actually put at the forefront of the discussion, the companies that have raised the most, that are like, I have this perceived success, but that's only one lens of success. And, uh, and the beauty is like, you can be massively successful in many other ways. And there are many fa- founders making way more actually money for themselves and for like zero, the early, uh, the early employees by actually not raising money, uh, and taking another pass. And the, the reward of, of value of the company and ownership or, or growth and, and revenue is, a, is an equation that uh, is not discussed often, you know, in an ecosystem that is, uh, glorifying raising, raising money. Right. It reminds right. me of a, yeah. a quote from uh, Henry Kravitz, the, one of the founders of KKR. And he said, never congratulate me for buying a company. Congratulate me for selling one. That's it. It's just, I love the simplification of these thoughts, guys. This is great. And, and you know, I really like, Clint, the, the phrase you used, uh, you know, lens for success. You know, what are you looking at success? You know, what lens are you looking at it through? Because we've got a vaccine on the way, hopefully. And in 2021, the big news of the week is that we've got multiple vaccines that are gearing up. So how do you all see this playing out next year and the impact that it's going to have on the startup landscape? Yeah, I, um, one of the things that I've been thinking about for this is, you know, first of all, it's nice to have a brush, uh, breath of fresh air and optimism in a, in a world that can be very challenging in 2020. Um, doesn't erase the very human pain that's occurred, but um, it's nice to have some optimism I'm really interested because so much had to change what's going to stick. Cause I, I don't believe that everything just goes back to the way it, it was right. Like things will change. Like the amount of uh, travel that people do. I think a lot about us uh, um, for as investors and the founders that we work with and support is like, you used to kind of have to travel to the hubs to raise money. And now because of the situation we're sitting in, um, you don't like those, those investors are investing virtually. They didn't stop investing. Does it go back to the way it was? Does it hold some of the new? And I I think we're like, there's not going to be a lot of binaries in this world of like it went back or it stayed the same. There's going to be bifurcations. And so there's going to be like a group of investors that don't care about location anymore. And there's going to be a group that try to go back to the old way. And you're going to get this really interesting mix of like founder alignment around different types of investor behavior. And um, I'm really excited to see that because I think personally, I embrace the like location doesn't really matter. And I think it's oh, going to yeah. be, I, I think it's going to be like a competitive advantage for me long-term. Clem, are you going to be the minority report on this? Because I'm with Taylor. Like I, I'm all about like the remote life Our you know, our, our good friend, Troy Hinnikoff has, has been an outspoken critic of remote uh, collaboration in certain contexts. And it's been a blast just to like, you know, spar with different, you know, investors and founders about this subject. So let, 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 let's hear your take on this, sir. Uh I mean, the people that are advocating everything will be remote forever, like are, are mis, 
I think, misreading a lot of the behavior. We are extremely lucky here. We have a fully digital world, uh, can operate fully remotely. We're in a very subset of the population that can ha that has the luxury to say remote is awesome. Uh, the reality is like the vast majority of companies need an element of physical element of physical presence. And as con however, the consumer behavior are changing. Um, like, so I, I agree with everything you shared, Taylor. I mean, I'm seeing like companies like canceling lease, going, moving fully remote. There is, uh, so all that trend is a given. Uh, however, I'll take like Boston, like I'm still bought in, I live in Boston, will stay in Boston, focus on Boston-based companies or companies that can leverage the local Boston ecosystem. Examples, the vaccine, one of the two vaccines that is like currently discussed is from Moderna that is based in Boston, that actually out of that, there is a lot of, that needs labs, uh, that works a lot on bioinformatics, wet labs, and a lot of the early employees are about to leave Moderna to start their own company and are actually going to stay like in the ecosystem. And so also the remote is going to be in some case to your point, Taylor, uh, much more accepted. There is the, ex the aspect of in-person or I see companies now doing in-person with a lot of testing, with a lot of in-person like off-sites. And, and there is still that element that is, uh, that is, uh, that is, that is present. So it's impacting how people work. The overall, the underlining Teams that are being worked on, like I mean, bioinformatics, biopharma, all that healthcare, healthcare ecosystem is booming, uh, like ever, and that is still going to be here to continue. And I think that people, as a result of that, also are okay to bet on deeper technologies or technologies that take more time to mature uh, because a lot of the learnings that we have in this pandemic is the bleeding edge technologies that are allowing us to do a, like extremely fast detection, vaccine, all that were technologies that took like decade to, to bring from, from the uh, lab bench and people are, are embracing, oh, that's a new category of innovation that we might have under, uh, under uh, looked, uh, overlooked in the past. Yeah, claim it almost sounds like people coming out of some of those companies in Boston working on the vaccine stuff to uh, apply to Techstars Boston. There might be some discussion happening right now. I cannot say, uh, I can't <laughs> hear or deny anything here. Uh-huh. Gotcha. And uh, Taylor, how are you feeling about the vaccine? I'm, I'm ambiguous, right? Like I, like, like I said, I'm optimistic, but. Don't tell me you won't take the vaccine. No, I'm not saying that, but at the same time, like. I would fly out and rip your head off. <laughs> Well, but so like, my issue is the trust in science, right? I feel as though there's been so much attack on science over the last X number of years that might equal four. Um, and I hope that we regain the trust in that. Like I struggle to have as much trust as a, in the FDA as I did before. Like, honestly, they just haven't performed as well as they is in certain situations as they should have, could have. It's not that they didn't, you know, try, but it's just like, I really hope that we're ushering in a successful set of vaccines, health returns, and that a, a focus on science being how we build a health, healthy safety society is what's next. Um, so I don't know, like, I'm not probably the first person in line. Um, and part of that is a luxury of being able to sit in my closet here and work. Um, but at the same time, I really want to contribute to the overall health and safety of the population. So I feel like I need to, I need to take it for that. Oh, and Taylor, I thought I thought you were in a studio. It, it, closet, closet studio. What's the difference? I mean, 
yeah it's it's the abbey road of colorado is really what it is there it is there it is love it all right so last but not least this one's gonna hit a little closer to home guys but let's talk about our uh, virtual demo days at TechStars because for founders demo day is our end of program celebration and our time to show off progress on the big stage right with all the good people all of our investors our whole community and TechStars has six demo days this week so as the pandemic is grinding on we're all suffering from Zoom fatigue, even right now in this very moment. What's your advice on virtual demo days and the virtual life in general? So the, 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 you're asking that question, we're recording actually that podcast as there is like uh, this week, I believe seven Techstars programs that are doing their demo day, joint demo day uh, today and earlier. There was this like massive gathering of like six programs coming together from like Korea to, 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 uh, to the West Coast, East Coast, Europe, all the founders coming together and pitching in front of a, of a, of a group of investors. So, which was, which was amazing. Uh, so, there is two parts like uh, the, the impact on end of program experience, which I think actually the reality is the programs moving to virtual to some extent are even more powerful than when they were in person. In person, you had like your small the cohort and you're given like ecosystem. Now there is truly celebration and, and joint classes experience. So I've never seen that much connection between programs. It's, 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 awesome. Uh, and founders actually take notice of that and get even more value while still getting the handcrafted one-to-one experience that they get by joining a small cohort. So, so that's awesome. Yeah, Tom, uh, case your- in point, like that's what both of us, I mean, that's why the three of us are here right now, right? Yeah. The three of us are, are coordinating and meeting every week to support our respective programs and, and, and you know, talk shop. So yeah, I didn't mean to cut you off there. No, 100%. I mean, the, 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 last, the last point is the founders, however, that succeed the most right now are the ones that are excellent, not even good, excellent at communication. Like their cadence and hygiene of communication, follow-up, email answers, uh, staging information and news. Like these are the people who succeed right now, regardless of the end of program experience. And so that's like there is a hyper-conscious bias on communicators, to some extent hustlers, because they are the ones that are the best able to convey through a screen and remotely what's happening. So that's like alongside the end of programs, that's what we see like as a shift. The hyper communicator tend to be the most successful founders right now. That's great advice. Taylor, how about you? Thoughts on demo day and virtual life in general? Yeah, I, I think that it comes down to just a good analysis of like what, like to what end, right? Like I'm a big, just like, let's talk about the outcome sort of guy. And demo days are fun and they've previously been these like convening of community, but it's like, what are we achieving with it is the thing that I constantly ask, whether it's demo day or anything else. And it is like these investor connections. It is building community because community is critical and Techstars believes in that deeply. Um, It's also that we work with a lot of corporate partners and um, how do those people become part of those communities and engage with the innovation that those founders are leading and I think like the challenge is to say like, how do you manage uh, the desires of lots of different stakeholders um, and then do it in a virtual environment? Because previously it was, we're going to get a bunch of people in a room and achieve a lot of those outcomes in a physical space. And like digital product doesn't work that way. You have to unpack the problems. You have to say like, how do these features actually solve that thing? And like, that's where I'm at. I'm like, let's, let's back it up and say, Hey, is it the founders getting funding? 
Is it them connecting to customers? Is it partnership? Is it making people feel connected? Because like you can't just throw the people in a room anymore. And I, I think the Techstars team has done great uh, work with that, with like the demo day products that we've built and tried to do that. But I think we should constantly be critical of it to say, how do we constantly make it better? How do we refine it? How do we measure what, what progress we're making on that so that the founders have the best chance of succeeding because building a startup's hard. And that's why we're here. We're here to support founders. Taylor, I, I love it. I mean, clearly defining the desired outcome from like, what's the point of it? You know, why are we gathering and why are we using this virtual format in order to help our founders make progress at the culmination of this experience is, is crucial. And, you know, Clem and I have some shared experience firsthand with this at the earlier, at the beginning of this year, look at Clem smiling. He knew I was going to say this. So at the beginning of this year, when we had to go remote, like it was super hard and it was one of those stressful times to, to abruptly shift to remote when COVID hit. And then to also see our incredible team at Techstars, like just scramble to figure out how to like transform so many, like hundreds of companies into this, you know, virtual format in order to present. It was just, it was, it was pretty incredible. So uh, all the gratitude to, to you guys as investors and to Techstars as a team and to all the other accelerators and programs out there that found a way to turn on a dime and still do the best possible job for their founders to give them the best look. So the force and function of being remote has trade-offs, you know, upsides and downsides, but I think it's really clear that there's enough to be thankful for, for us to end, you know, this podcast, at least on a very positive note. So I, I just want to thank you, Clem and you, Taylor, for joining me for this. This has been fantastic. I can't wait to have you guys back on some point once this podcast is roaring success and all that good stuff, but thanks for, you know, a good episode too. And uh, guys, let's get back to work. Hey, thanks for listening. What did you think of this week's conversation? You can find our contact info in the episode notes, or you can hit me up on Twitter. I'm at Neil Salas. I would love to hear from you, and I'll catch you next time. I heard on, uh, that it already is a roaring success, so that, that's oh. the worst as far as I know. So, there we uh, go. It just, all it took was one episode, just one and done. <laughs>